Hello, all you legal technology enthusiasts, lawyers, investigators, paralegals, public disclosure officers, e-discovery leads, litigation support specialists, and trivia buffs, and anyone else who's stumbled across this podcast. Welcome back to the Xilab Podcast. I am Jay Schneider, Director of Professional Services of North America, as well as podcast host, one of the podcast hosts. I'm not alone. With me, as always, is Brenda Dodd, our Director of Government Technologies and co-host of the Xyla Podcast. Welcome, Brenda. Hey, Jay. So, Brenda, what are we talking about today? Oh, well, I think we're going to continue our discussion on AI and machine learning. As you know, we uh, in our last podcast, we talked a lot about that, and we wanted to continue the conversation. I believe we're also going to have Jan or Johannes uh, Schultz back our CSO from Xilab. Jay, is that right? Uh, yes, definitely. So we had so much to talk about last time, we knew we wouldn't be able to get into one episode. Uh, so we are going to continue our discussion. As you may remember from the last episode, we discussed some of the key points in evolution in artificial intelligence and really how we got to where we are now. And where we are now is that this technology is now available and accessible to us. But what we're finding is people don't understand it. People still fear it. Uh, but it's something that we're using. It's something that's all around us. So today we're going to talk about really ways we can apply it, some best practices, and really what the future holds for uh, machine learning and this exciting technology in our field. So Brenda, I've got a question for you before we get started. This is not a trivia question. This is just more of a your personal opinion question. Okay. So I recently looked at a survey results from uh, the ARM company, the ARM who makes chips, you know, that are silicon chips that are in so many of our devices. And they did a, a poll and survey about artificial intelligence, uh, not specific to legal technology, of course, just in general. And they had some one of the questions was about concerns uh, about artificial intelligence. So I'm asking you, Brenda, what do you think are some of the more common? Uh, so what are some of the more common uh, things that people are concerned with uh, or scared of or resistant to with artificial uh, intelligence technology? Well, I think specifically for the legal community or legal field itself, um, I think that there's this notion of them being replaced by robots. Mm -hmm. you know, are the attorneys thinking that they're going to lose their jobs because you know this technology is so advanced and so much more intelligent than what a human supposedly could do that they're in fear of that? Um, perhaps it's the fear of losing revenue that is that this technology is going to make them too efficient, um, losing out on their billable hours. Uh, that's a that's a good point. Is that uh, for those of you who people who are working in a uh, billing field or where you know you're you're billing for your time, suddenly getting a, a a tool that helps you be much more efficient can sometimes go counter to what your uh, business objectives are. Yeah, I I think that that's definitely one of the misconceptions. I also think that there's a fear um, on behalf of the legal community that they're going to make mistakes or they have a fear. Um, that they're not going to do something, uh, they're not going to be able to use the technology correctly, and it'll, they'll either have to end up facing not only the judge, but answering to their clients. I think that may be a big concern. And I also think that just maybe they think that this technology is just too complex or hard to use. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're right on, on the spot. First of all, the, the lack of understanding the technology, which it is a complicated 
subject. There's a lot of, uh, last time we talked about a lot of terms, which some of them are, you know, actual scientific terms. Some of them are just marketing terms. It's hard to understand what is what. I would say the good news is while we absolutely want to educate the community and we want everyone to be learn about what this great technology uh, is consists of. At the same time, the landscape right now is that the technology is is trusted. It, uh, and I mean this by in the legal community, it is more common uh, that people are using it. And you don't have to be uh, you know, an expert to use it. But that said, we still want you to understand it. Also, another interesting point you brought up is about the making mistakes, Brenda. And I know we've talked about this before. You brought up a really good point about, you know, people often question if the machine will make a mistake, but what about humans? Well, we all know that humans make mistakes, Jay. Brenda, uh, I will tell you to this day, uh, my mother still calls me by my sister's name about half the time. And, uh, you know, I used to think it was something weird about her, but I've got two boys. Of course, I know their names, but I will also say about half the time I call each other by the other's name. So okay, you, you do have twin boys, too, though. This is true. In this my defense true. or uh, against me, I shouldn't say in my defense, I, I do not have twins. I have two boys, two girls, and I call my sons by my daughter's names all the time. Absolutely. So whether it's a, a parent, uh, you know, swapping the names of their children, or it's a reviewer looking at a document and humans will make mistakes or it could be late at the end of the day. Uh, there's also more inconsistency. I, I like to you know, joke to my wife that I'm consistently inconsistent. But one of the nice things about machines is if a machine makes a mistake, it's a consistent mistake. You know, it's it's often easy to go back to technology. If we applied some type of rule and we found that it, you know, was not capturing what we meant, we can usually trace back what that was. With a human, I don't know, could have been, you know, brain just went blank for a moment and made the wrong decision. So um, really, again, all these fears of is that can we trust the technology uh, or, you know, are we going to become so efficient that we lose our jobs or lose revenue? Uh, when I looked, going back to this survey, uh, some of the answers, 57% of the people who responded to this survey that I read, so that uh, they're worried about AI becoming more intelligent than humans, uh, which is, I guess, always also the fear of, uh, of movies and, and AI sci-fi. And then 63% were concerned about AI machines being unreliable. Um, good news today is we're going to be talking about some of you know, what happens when the machine makes mistakes and and is that a problem or you know how what's the current stability of the algorithms so we'll be talking about that today but first brenda we like to talk about some trivia of course and i heard rumor that you had a question for me i do have a question um and it's actually a true or false question and oh, the reason 50. why i'm asking this one is because today is the first day of spring Yay. and i have definitely have spring fever so I wanted to give you a spring-related trivia question. So oh. true or false, Jay? Do baby birds need to learn how to sing? Do baby birds need to learn how to sing? I've got a 50-50 shot at this. Yeah. I will say yes, they do need to know how to sing. Yes, that is true. Although baby, I, that's I, I know. 50-50. I, I, I was a little bit surprised that this was true. I just always figured that birds were just natively born with the ability to, to chirp or sing. But actually, although the baby birds are born with the ability to make noise, 
they actually must hear in order to learn how to sing. They have to hear in order to learn how to sing. You know, that, just to bring it back into uh, last week, that sounds to me like a bit of supervised learning. Yes, absolutely. That was another reason why I wanted to ask this question. You see what we did there? Wow, that was great. Uh, Well, Brenda, I've got a question, but I don't want you to answer it. This is, again, a question for our audience to see how closely they pay attention to the show. So, uh, Brenda, my question, and again, it is not a multiple choice uh, to answer the question. Just listen to the rest of the show and you might find the answer. We'll recap at the end. A company from which country pioneered the first compact cassette as well as compact disc player. Interesting. So which country? We're looking for the country. Uh, did a lot of uh, great pioneering work and creation uh, on the cassette tape as well as the CD. And I didn't, we'll, we'll talk about this at, at the end, Brenda, and we'll see if uh, you and the listeners get it right. Yeah, that's funny you bring a, the compact cassette up because I I was recently cleaning out some closets and I found a box of just old miscellaneous stuff and in that box was a bunch of compact cassettes. They probably were around from like the mid to late 80s when I was a teenager and was recording songs off the radio. <laughs> just, what, what, just to say how far we've come in technology. Well, what's a little bit sad about what we're talking about right now is you and I are sitting here laughing, talking about all oh, the cassette tapes we found in our closet. Yet I also mentioned CDs, and there's probably some people listening who are, what's a CD? Uh, so, exactly. So, all right, Brenda. Well, let's uh, get back into our conversation with Jan. How does that sound? Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's let's hear what Jan has to say um, about these misconceptions and myths that are out there. One of the misconceptions that I am aware of is that that you must use a subject matter expert when you're using machine learning or any type of AI. Um, I personally learned that that's not really the case when I when I was first uh, looking at our Xilab assisted review product and did a test case and was just pleasantly or shockingly surprised that after one training round, how the system quickly was able to return um, documents that were potentially relevant and and exactly on point to the issue that I was looking at. So Jan, what are some other misconceptions that you commonly hear or are aware of when it comes to using this type of technology? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a, a very good example. And um, I think that uh, in the early um, machine learning algorithms that were used in uh, predictive coding in particular in TAR, TAR 1.0, um, that's where you 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 needed to be uh, a subject ex- expert. Uh, they were more complicated and these algorithms were also less stable. They, they, they required that the data was uh, Pre-processed and pre-formatted in a number of uh, in a number of different uh, uh, ways, so that it 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 was like perfectly suitable for machine learning. Uh, the machine learning algorithms that we implemented at Xilab are much more robust. They're like you know next generation machine learning algorithms. Also, we put a lot of effort in making a very good uh, transformation from textual information to uh, to the the mathematical. Uh, format that's used by the machine learning algorithms. And uh, yeah, we, we solved a lot of problems 
uh, automatically. Uh, so as a result, you no longer have to be a machine learning or a subject matter expert uh, in order to, uh, to uh, teach the machine learning to our algorithms. Now, there's a lot of other misconceptions. Um, one of them is that uh, there's different ways to start a machine learning uh, uh, session, different starting points. Uh, you could start with a random set. Uh, so you, you take a number of documents, you review them all, and then the documents you start with are randomly selected from a very large data set. And then you review that data set for a number of um, responsive reasons. And, uh, and that's the data set you're then going to use to uh, teach the machine learning. The reason why this was done with a random set was to avoid any form of bias. So you're not sending the computer in a certain predetermined direction. Um, this was the, I, the conception was that this was the only way to do machine learning. Um, we've done a lot of uh, tests here, and there's also been a lot of scientific research, which shows that that's, it actually doesn't matter whether you start random or whether you start with a search query or whether you start with unsupervised machine learning or topic modeling or concept search. Uh, maybe there are some slight differences in the beginning. Uh, but very quickly, all three uh, approaches result in exactly the same end result. Um, it's, it's a marginal difference, uh, uh, less than uh, 0.1 promille or less uh, if you look at how many documents need to be reviewed uh, manually. Uh, another interesting uh, uh, misconception uh, is one which was also important in the beginning of the predictive coding uh, era. Uh, lawyers then fought a lot over the need to have parties disclose the initial training set to each other because they wanted to determine if the documents that were used for training were exactly uh, perfect for a machine learning, uh, from a machine learning point of view. So the documents were exactly on certain topics and they were not on like derivatives or, or, uh, or a little slightly, um, slightly uh, different topics than the ones that uh, were intended. Um, we did a lot of research there as well. Uh, we published it also in uh, a couple of uh, scientific uh, conferences uh, where we actually found out that even if you deliberately train the computer with up to 30% totally wrong data, um, the end results are still the same. Uh, it only takes a little bit longer, so the machine learning process will be a little bit slower, um, but it's only like 5% uh, slower uh, even when you try to confuse it with up to 30%. So, um, so that's another misconception which, uh, which we have uh, addressed uh, in the past. Um, another one, uh, which was one of the misconceptions also from the early TAR, is that you have to select a perfect sample of training documents and then train the algorithm in one go. Uh, what we found over the years, um, and this was something we already knew for, for decades in the uh, field of machine learning, is that if you take an iterative approach, which was called uh, already uh, uh, in the 1990s by David Lewis, uh, uh, an algorithm which he called active learning, where you learn a computer a couple of samples, then with a the classifier you find uh, a couple of other 
relevant samples, you review them and you update your training set and you go to this iterative process, which is now called in eDiscovery also called continuous active learning, um, where the addition continuous actually is like a marketing term. Um, uh, it actually learns much faster than if you and better, and it also allows the users to kind of adopt what they're looking for in a more interactive way than uh, in the additional, the initial ideas where machine learning was done in one go. So all of these are, are misconceptions. Okay, Brenda, let's stop the conversation right there. So he said a lot of things about kind of misconceptions and the old versus new thinking or current thinking on TAR. Uh, but I think one of the key points that the question that you asked was, you do you need to be an, an SME or an expert? And the answer was a definitive no. no. Right. Exactly. So I think that's one of the key takeaways is that, yes, in the early days, uh, you we, there was this mindset or this practice that you needed an expert to train the system appropriately and properly and, and make sure that the data set was a certain type and way to make sure you got the good results and train the system properly so it could learn. And the good news for all of us is that is no longer uh, the case today. Yeah, I agree, Jay. And I yeah, you know, when we were talking about this subject matter expert and um, the fact that people thought that you had to be one in order to use this technology, and even talking about the disclosure of the seed set, I think back to my days, uh, early days as a paralegal and reviewing documents and having boxes and boxes of documents. And did we ever give someone else our, like, did we have to tell them what our protocol was and how we decided what was relevant and what was not relevant back then? It, it, to me, it, it just, that whole entire argument did not make sense because I would never hold myself out as a subject matter expert on any of the document reviews that I had done in my early days as a paralegal, especially, you know, when they one of my very first jobs is they just plopped me down in front of a desk and said, hey, tag any documents that are related to XYZ. Yeah, and I think I think that's a, a key point is that a, a lot of the arguments in the early days uh, about machine learning and, and not trusting technology, if you made those same arguments against how the human process, they wouldn't hold up. Uh, but again, there's a time of this new and, and people didn't understand it. And Jan even mentions the, the algorithms are, are much more stable today. The good news for everyone listening is that current algorithms are very stable, so stable that when in our tests at Xilab, when you deliberately give wrong information and mistrain or use varying sample sets, whether it's a random or a nicely groomed sample set, the results at the end end up being very similar. I mean, almost exactly the same. So it, that's reassuring to know that if you know there's any mistakes or you think it may not be the the perfect you know sample documents it's using to learn from. In fact, actually, you don't even really need to sample documents anymore because you can just start reviewing, and you know, our system will start learning. So it's a it's a much different process. There's there's not this long setup and training period. You simply go in do your review and the system will learn how you're doing it. So it's a great time we're living in, uh, I think, with the machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we talked about at the, the beginning of the podcast, where some the fear is that many people think that this technology is just too complex or hard to use. I think that the technology, when it first came out, yes, maybe that was the case, or maybe um, a lot of people really truly believed that that was the case, but now it really isn't. 
So, yeah, I, I think that the underlying technology and concepts might be very complex. However, if you're doing your job and you need to review documents or, or use it, it's very easy. You know, like I said, in Xilab, you just go and you start reviewing. Uh, in the same way, a, a, the phones that we have are very complex technology, but we can all use it very successfully. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I like how Jan had said, you know, um, that the, it doesn't matter how you get started. That the results are going to be exactly the same, maybe some marginal differences. Oh. Uh, this technology that we have now is very easy to use. Uh, when I first started using it, and I think I, I mentioned this when I was talking to you, I just said, okay, I'm going to just do this. I think I'll learn better on myself if I just get my hands dirty and, and start doing it. And I could not believe how quickly, just after one round of training, and I, I, we call it training, but it's basically just saying, yes, this document's responsive to my issue. No, this document wasn't. That the, you know, when I, asked the system to give me some more documents, it immediately gave me documents that were very on point and relevant to the issue that I was looking for. Um, so if I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> now, Brenda, there, there's a, a, another thing to look at here is, and we've talked about this before, even outside the scope of machine learning, is that, you know, are you using the right tool for the right job. And so in spite of all the advances and, and wonderful you know, place we're in right now with machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's also key to, to make sure we don't go overboard. And, and you know, we want to know when it is applicable and when it might not be. Um, as I think I said last time, if I'm literally just searching for the word cat and that's all I want, you know, I can search for cat. You know, maybe I don't need to, you know, have the system learn what a cat is. Uh, I might if I want it to go beyond that scope, but, you know, really do what we're not. What we don't want to do is is overcorrect and, and suddenly say, oh, artificial intelligence. It's, it's the new kale. It's the new avocado toast. We want it on everything. It, we really need to make sure that we're using it in the right situations. Now, it is fantastic for document classification and grouping things. That's why we use it on, is it responsive, not responsive? Is it responsive to a particular issue in our system? You might have you know, 12 or 15 separate issues you're looking at and it can categorize them as it learns how you're doing it. And that is an effective way to do it. However, there are situations where you may not uh, want to use it or certain types of data that you're looking through that it might not be as effective in all cases. So uh, let's talk about, uh, or let's hear what Jan had to say about that couple of use cases where machine learning doesn't work. For instance, if you want to try it on numbers, uh, uh, it doesn't work because numbers don't have the natural distribution that natural language has, which is used by the machine learning to separate relevant documents from non-relevant documents. Uh, in a legal context, any number, any number can be can be relevant. So we cannot use that for machine learning. Of course, you can also not do machine learning on a very um, uh, or documents that contain only audio or, or images or video. Um, or if you have extremely short documents, like somebody just replying okay to an email, you know, you cannot use that for, for uh, machine learning to classify documents. You can use it for searching. Uh, um, another example is, is very long documents. If you have a document from 2,000 pages, it covers so many topics, so many different subjects that it also cannot be used for machine learning. So, so there's a number of examples where machine learning doesn't work. Now, what you used to have to do in the past is you have to, uh, you had to manually clean up the whole data set before you could uh, 
start machine learning in a responsive way. Now, what we did in our platform is that we address a lot of these issues automatically. So users can identify these documents and then review them in another way, either manually or using other technology. Um, and, and don't worry about these type of documents in machine learning. And this is something we learned over the years to deal with these type of documents. And that's also what makes the uh, Xilab uh, machine learning really different from a lot of other machine learning uh, that's in the field where, yes, you still do need a data scientist to clean up the data set before you can reliably and defensively uh, apply the machine learning. So, Jay, Jan has given us some insight into when this machine learning isn't always appropriate or less effective. He's talked about how it does not necessarily um, makes sense to use it when there's a lot of numbers or audio, video, um, and images, which to me de definitely would make sense. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So if we just think about this, so the, the system is learning, you know, we're looking at documents, we're reading words, and we are making decisions, you know, classifying a document, and the system is learning from that as well, uh, and we're basing those on text. But if we suddenly come across a spreadsheet then that's a little bit different from the meaning that we had in some text document. So if it's a numbers-based document, it's not going to have the same you know, meaning or input for the machine learning. Uh, similarly, if the document is really short, you know, emails that just have an okay, hello, ver or if it's a novel, if you have all of war and peace, because there's so much text in that document, it could you know, it could be classified under many categories. So if you're tagging it, um, so again, if we look at that, sometimes the size, it can be more of a challenge uh, for the AI to, to truly learn from. So, um, you know, those are things to keep in mind. So I, I guess a follow-up question to that would be, if we are, if these types of documents are, or data or files are included in your review project, is it going to confuse the system um, if they are included? It's not going to confuse the system because ultimately, as we said, we talked about you know those tests we did where we were deliberately misgiving wrong information. I mean, you know, classifying documents for a responsive or for a particular issue and deliberately misclassifying and seeing that that over time the system would correct and learn. Um, however, if you go to extremes, it's always a good way to look at it. If you go to extremes and you have two word documents and twenty thousand spreadsheets it probably will be less effective. Um, one of the things that we do at Xilab is we identify some file types before you start that may be less valuable. And, and so then those are good to maybe set aside and not include in the process or, you know, you know and those, those are things that can help and it's about being more efficient. So a lot of it is, is can be common sense, the human common sense that we don't quite know if machines have that common sense yet uh, and, and it makes sense. Let me also make a, a quick note about uh, you know, images and audio and video. So what Jan was talking about is, is absolutely right in terms of some of the challenges they present, but that is not to say that artificial intelligence does not come into play when classifying, say, uh, images, for example. Even at Xilab, our data science team is working on you know, methods of, that can identify images and know that in this picture, there is an adult male, or there is a vehicle, or there is a weapon. And so these are things that, that AI can be used for, but when we're talking about straight, typical, current document review, uh, we're really focusing on a lot of text-based documents and if they are exceedingly long or exceedingly short, you know, it's, it's just going to be less useful information for the system to learn from. Right. So I do also want to point out something that just 
I was just thinking about when you were talking about the Xilab uh, assisted review system. Um, we, Jan and, and you mentioned how these long documents and there's so many topics. However, I do want to point out the fact that with the Xilab system, you can actually run assisted review on multiple issues simultaneously. Um, so Jay, I think that's going to segue into um, when when do we use TAR? When when is this type of technology? You know, let's talk about those use cases and when it it makes sense and it's appropriate to use them. Absolutely. So uh, what? So when we when we were talking about the various states of TAR, TAR 1.0, TAR 2.0. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, EDRM TAR guide was released not long ago. Brenda and I have looked at that, and we're probably going to include that in a future episode. So when we looked at that, there was this you know older way model of training the system, getting it to a point where it understood enough, and then letting it do the rest. Because again, a lot of what we're talking about is classifying documents, categorizing or coding documents, and humans do it, and the machine can can take over. But what we find most common, uh, the most common use cases that we're finding currently are what we call the priority review. Uh, Brenda, what's the priority review? So uh, in a priority review, you're basically using a, uh, the machine learning protocol to review your documents where the, as you're reviewing the documents, the system is learning and based on your decisions that you're making, it's going to funnel the most relevant documents to the top of your review pile and you continue to review those documents until you reach a level where the system is saying, hey, you've reviewed all of the, the potentially relevant or most likely relevant documents and you really can stop here and don't need to review anymore. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I know you have a better way of explaining it, Jay, but from a layperson's perspective, would you agree that that's... Oh, Brenda, you explained it just fine. Uh, <laughs> so with the in the priority review, in this model, it's no longer I'm going to train the system, get it to a point, and say, do it the rest. Essentially, reviewers will see just about all the responsive documents. And what happens as, as you just start reviewing, the system learns what you're looking for. And this is exactly what you were looking experienced, Brenda, when you were doing that. And, you know, after, you know, reviewing some documents, the system started giving you more documents, which were pretty spot on to what you're looking for. And so the system will keep doing that as you start tagging documents as responsive or not responsive. And then what happens is eventually the system can't find anymore. And it, and, and you get these documents which are not ranking as high or are not really as responsive. And you can reach a point where you can be fairly confident that there's not much left in the data set. Now, what this does is if you have traditional linear review and you have a million documents to get through, responsive documents could be scattered anywhere throughout that those million documents. And you're starting at document zero, going all the way through document one million, and you're going to find them as you find them in a linear review. However, with priority review, as you start on document one, two, three, four, as the system learns, it's going to find documents that it thinks are relevant and send them up so that they're at the head of the queue. So it front loads all the responsive documents or the responsive documents it finds. And so eventually, when you get, so in, let's say, for example, in, in a, a million documents, there are 10,000 that are responsive. Isn't it better to get to those 10,000 in that first 
part of your review versus waiting until the final 10,000 documents of your review. So as it front loads them, you reach a point where the system is not finding anymore. And that's about the point where you and the system can agree. You can have a chat about it. You know, are we good? Are we completed with the review? And you know, you've, you can be fairly confident you have seen just about all the responsive documents. Now, yes, if you want to go through every document to have 100% certainty, then you have to go through 100% of the documents. However, the great news for most litigations is that you don't need 100%, you just need a reasonable amount of effort. And if we talk about the burden to, to say, hey, I've gone through this and I'm confident that I have found over 80% or 90% of the documents in the whole data set that are responsive, and the effort it would take to go through the remaining you know, almost 1 million documents would be too burdensome. So we have a lot of factors to consider as we look at, at our review. Okay. Uh, what about some other use cases that, that you've seen uh, people using assisted review for? Absolutely. So while the priority reviews tends to be the more common, there are people who still use more of the traditional where they train the system. However, you don't have to go through all those hoops of uh, you know, of the, the proper seed set and a subject matter expert. But essentially, you know, we have this ability of you, you review documents and train the system until you get to a point where you believe the system can find the rest of the documents on, on it. And this is usually a situation where you are not concerned in, in a priority review, a reviewer, a human reviewer is going to get their eyes on just about all responsive documents. In, if you have a massive data set and it is not critical that you have eyes on every document, then there's a point where you say, all right, we've trained a percentage of the documents. I trust the system knows enough. I don't care about, you know, I don't need to look at the rest. I will let it go find the rest and I will classify remaining. That's that classify remaining button you see in Xilab. And some people choose that when it's a massive data set and they need to get through something pretty quickly. Um, but that's not all. There's more. We also have the intelligent search option. And this is where, you know, I might have conducted some searches and I think I'm a pretty brilliant query builder and I've, I've created some fantastic searches. And I find some documents and I say, hey, Xilab, I did a, a search. Can you find something similar to this that my search didn't catch? And here's where people are finding that even their best traditional searches is missing some documents. Uh, because, but because the system does it in a different way, it's able to find other documents that were not captured by the search that I did, but were related. Uh, we also see, you know, uh, sometimes people just use it for quality control, uh, even some sampling uh, of some data sets, whether it's received by another party, uh, whether it's, it's being a part of some other, uh, you know, use case or an investigation. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to use this technology, but it's all some form of document classification. Yeah, one interesting use case that I'd recently encountered with a client was they were using it. They had already done their review of their client's documents. They then received the opposing side's uh, production. They loaded it into the system, and based on the existing tags that were applied or the responsiveness for various issues on the documents that they'd already reviewed, they ran these documents that they just received through our technology-assisted review pro uh, software. And they were easily able to classify and immediately have the documents that they receive from the opposing side funnel up to the top as being most likely relevant to the issues that they were that they wanted to address in this matter. So I thought that was a pretty interesting use case. I think that is an interesting use case, and I think more and more of our clients uh, might do that in the future, or at least we can recommend that they do. Uh, I think that's an exciting way to to use the system. 
day beyond straight review um, and document classification, we mm -hmm. have seen that this technology is being used in other ways. Um, and I think this is uh, something else that we talked to Jan about. So let's hear what he has to say uh, about what we can expect to see from this type of technology. All right, sounds good. The other thing that we're working on a lot at Xilab is that we see that most of our users uh, analyze the data in, in similar, and they use a similar strategy. And that strategy is often focused on um, finding answers to typical uh, questions, which are very similar, extremely similar to a way how a, a detective or a police investigator approaches uh, a problem. They're interested in the who did it, why did they do it, uh, where did they do it, how did they do it, by which means, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is this is this is called the golden W's, in um, and this is what they teach. Uh, investigators when they uh, when they go to the police academy and what we do at Xilab is we use text mining and other technology to automatically align and organize the data along these dimensions so we're going to find out who are the who's uh, the where's the when the why the what the how how much by which means and then we're going to organize the data in such a way that it's much easier for the users of our software to find answers to the typical questions that they have. Now, once you've done this, um, this the next step is then to uh, involve anomaly detection and try to find out which kind of who's are wrong. So are there certain communities? Um, are these communities logical? Uh, like a community is like a CEO with a whole support group. But what happens if there's like other people part of this community which should not be part of that community based on the organigrams of the organization? Or when sir, what happens if certain offshore companies are involved in certain transactions or are you know uh, uh, legal parties in in agreements? Um, and and uh, the whole field of anomaly detection is very young; it's still not very uh, reliable. Um, but it's an extremely promising field that will help us to analyze large data sets uh, even faster. Uh, another example is uh, event detection. Because uh, not only can you uh, detect uh, anomalies, you can also detect events uh, by looking at large changes in such uh, uh, analysis and data sets. So this is where we put a lot of our efforts now at Xilab in trying to find out what other methods can we use to help our users to find uh, anomalies, incidents, and set their priorities uh, even better when analyzing these very large data sets. Because uh, the data sets will only continue to grow. And where today we you know, deal with a terabyte of data in the average case, and sometimes even more, uh, in a couple of years from now, that will be two, three, four, eight, ten, twenty terabytes. So we already have to think about how we're going to deal with those large data sets and what technology we need. And and for a lot of these things, yeah, we have to uh, take a completely different approach. Um, and uh, and that's what we're uh, what's where we're spending most of our time in the data science team here at Xilab. 
Jay, I thought it was interesting to hear Jan talk about the W's um, and how this type of technology is going to help us provide strategies uh, for how we are going to analyze our data, um, which will eventually or ultimately make us better, faster, and more accurate. Um, but I thought it was really interesting when he started talking about the anomaly detection. Yeah, actually, I, anomaly detection, I think, is an interesting one because it really brings us to where if we look back where you had smaller amounts of data and some type of search capabilities, you, you knew, thought you knew what you were looking for, you could do a search and you could probably find it or get to where you wanted to go. Then we, we started getting much more data. And even with the best search, you're kind of like, I need some help because I've done a search, but I don't know if I have everything. Now we have such massive amounts of data and sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for or you'll miss something. And anomaly detection, I think is huge because for investigators or, or other people who are looking through massive amounts of documents say, hey, it's the system saying, this is different than what we find to be the normal. You know, and a human may not have been able to detect that. And so the system can say, hey, you should look at this. This is different. So I think anomaly detection is exciting. Uh, you know, the other, the fact, anytime a system is able to classify the documents and group them for you, again, we just have so much information, so much data, we don't even know where to start. And it's a way of, for the system to say, hey, look at this, this is important, or this is different and might require some of your attention. Yeah, so basically I can just say, hey, computer, why don't you just tell me what I don't already know? <laughs> so maybe it will be doing my job for me. Just don't don't let your bosses know. <laughs> of course not. All right. Well, so that's exciting in, in the realm of technology. But uh, Jan also then talked about what's specifically in Xilab's future. Yeah, let's take a listen. Um, yeah. Well, with Xilab's future, what uh, like I said, we uh, we have a lot of. Uh, Technology here that we have not implemented in our product. One of the reasons is that before we implement it in our product, we want to make sure that it works. And uh, we do extensive testing on very large data sets, uh, uh, data sets that we obtain from uh, scientific research, but also data sets that we create ourselves. And once we have uh, uh, at least uh, the same performance as uh, the average human being provides, uh, that's when we uh, release it uh, in our software. Um, one of the things that uh, we're going to uh, release very quickly is the um, ability to uh, annotate uh, images uh, with a short description of the content. Uh, another thing we're going to, uh, to do is to uh, provide uh, community detection. So not only showing who is communicating with who, but also by automatically deriving uh, communities and finding anomalies in those uh, communities. Um, and those two things will be uh, in our software uh, very fast. And then depending on uh, yeah, the priorities and some other things, we will probably add um, other functionality very quickly. Um, one of them is automatic summaries. Another that is uh, normalization of uh, names, like finding the same real-world entity with uh, a lot of uh, different textual spelling variations, and a couple of other um, yeah, smart algorithms that uh, help our users to analyze data faster and easier. 
Speaking of innovation, I think uh, some of our listeners would be surprised to know that the Netherlands is actually becoming a powerhouse in tech innovation. And some say it's actually the next Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, well, we also were the country that invented the CD player and the tape recorder a long time ago and a lot of other inventions, but you're absolutely right. It's, um, I'm going to say this is the most exciting, uh, these are exciting times. And uh, I wish I was born today because then the times would probably be even more exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, unfortunately, as the computers get smarter, faster, more efficient, the older we get, we we do the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we need the computers more than ever. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brenda. Yes, Jay? Did you hear the answer to that trivia question? I believe I did. All right. So as you remember at the top of the show, I asked the question, uh, which in which country was the company that uh, you know pioneered the cassette tape and the CD player? And Brenda, what was that answer? I believe Jan said that it was the Netherlands or the Dutch. Absolutely. So, of course, Jan, a proud Dutchman, uh, boasting of uh, the Philips company and their pioneering efforts in the cassette tape and the CD. Uh, Now, I will say that obviously there were, uh, you know, Sony definitely did a lot, especially in the compact disc. There were some other companies and players that had done some development. So I'm not trying to take away anything. I just want to make sure we're all, all, all aware that a proud Dutchman was explaining the pride of his his, his homeland's country, the, the, the Philips company, and their contributions and inventions with the cassette tape as well as the CD player. Very interesting. Yes. So with that, I think if we were to sum up on these past two episodes, the key things we want to take away is that technology is no longer optional when it comes to doing your document reviews. This is really, we're at a point, you have to use technology. It's not a nice to have, it's a requirement. And in fact, it's expected, even machine learning and artificial intelligence now is expected to be used. Uh, And in fact, I would say it's likely gonna be the exception that it is not used if if it's a high volume document case. Yes, I would agree with that, Jay. I think that it's going to become the exception. Absolutely. Uh, Another key takeaway is, yes, there's a lot of complexities underneath the surface uh, with the the algorithms, the science, the technology beneath it. However, the good news for you is that you do not need to be a data scientist. You do not need to be a master of the technology. Really, you just need to understand that the algorithms are stable. They're being implemented in these tools in very effective ways and that you, the reviewer, can just start using it and it will start working for you. So Jay, technically, it is sort of the easy button. We're getting close. We're getting close on that easy button, Brenda. (laughs) I like it. Uh, And then as Jan said, uh, you know, there's exciting times we're in now and probably exciting times ahead. I think I'm excited to see what's coming, how things are uh, implemented in in the coming years as well. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the show that the EDRM TAR guidelines were recently released, and so we'll, we've reviewed those, and we'll probably have another episode uh, on that where Brenda and I discuss and, and break that down for you. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about next time. What are we talking about next time, Brenda? Uh, next time we are going to talk about uh, FOIA, or Freedom of Information Act requests. Jay and I recently had an opportunity to sit in on the FOIA Advisory Committee meeting 
and we have a lot to talk about. That's right. Uh, lots to talk about in the world of public records requests, lots to talk about in the world of legal technology, and lots to talk about in more trivia coming on our next episode. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.